Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm here with Dr. Hector Garcia. He is a clinical psychologist specializing in the treatment of combat-related PTSD. He's assistant professor at the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Texas Health Science Center at San Antonio. He has published extensively on the treatment of PTSD in combat veterans, masculine psychology in the aftermath of war, the evolutionary roots of political partisanship, and the interplay between religious practice and psychopathology. He is also the author of Alpha God, The Psychology of Religious Violence and Oppression, and the more recent book, uh, Sex, Power and Partisanship, How Evolutionary Science Makes Sense of Our Political Divide. And we're going to focus our conversation today on this last book. So, Dr. Garcia, thank you a lot for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Ricardo. Oh, it's my pleasure. Okay, so let me ask you first, perhaps, to introduce people to the book. What is the basic premise of it? And I'm going to read just a quick citation there. But even before I get into that, uh, could you please expose what is the basic premise? Politics, political behavior can be irrational. And it can be volatile. It's it's often emotionally charged, and it can be confusing. I mean, so often we we watch uh, what's happening, irrespective of what part of the world you come from, irrespective of where you lie on the political spectrum. Uh, I think m many of us have had the experience of just watching the political spectacle on the news and just being perplexed and what is happening. <laughs> it's so. Uh, raw and emotional and unbridled sometimes. And I think the usual political discourse falls short of explaining where all this comes from um, because it tends to focus on surface level phenomena. So uh, we're going to talk about the evolutionary sciences, how these fit into uh, to these topics. But I, I love them for what they're able to clarify. Um, they, they, as you know, you've been covering this topic, I've noticed, for some time. And uh, they're so good at explaining the ultimate reasons for things, a like, a dislike, a policy preference. Why in the United States, half of the country, along with apparently the rest of the world, can be repelled by the words of their president, <laughs> and the other half can really be inspired by this very same person. And, and you know, in fact, many of them... <clears throat> see that person as having been directly appointed to his post by God himself. I mean, that is a, a very big contrast. So I, I seek to explain using these sciences, where what is political partisanship? Where does it come from? And why does it have such a gendered feel about it? You know, political conservatism across the world has a kind of masculine feel about it. Um, it tends to be more hawkish in its foreign policy, more territorial. So in, in the United States, there's this big debate about build the wall to, to separate the U.S. and Mexico, It's in, and, and conservatives are largely supporting this, and it tends to be focused on controlling women's reproductive behavior. All this is very old. All this ties into the pressures of our evolutionary past and, the, and the, our reproductive strategies. And, uh, you know, bringing this up to the surface for examination is important to, to help us 
uh, understand how to form more cohesive societies. So, so yeah, would you say that perhaps you've also written the book to try to get a better understanding of uh, where the political divide comes from and also perhaps at the present moment why we have such a political polarization across the globe? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, these polarizations are, are not new to the present time. You know, I, I mean, they've been happening in one form or another ever since we had civilizations. And they've been at the heart of where when civilizations collapse from the inside. And I even talk about how they come from a much more, more primitive place, just managing the primate dominance hierarchy. Because, look, we, we are social animals. We are social animals. And... There, interestingly, there's there are people who have a, a lot of discomfort at that very thought. But we're social animals, and we've lived in dominance hierarchies for our entire history as a species. And um, much of the struggles you see between the left and right are about the history of managing, you know, negotiating our position on the hierarchy and all the implications that has for our reproductive fitness. So. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's very interesting. We're going to get into the sort of political divide coming from sex differences, let's say. But one thing that immediately came to my mind when you were referring to that side of things is that back in 2016, during the US elections and the campaign, I guess that Donald Trump, for example, he, uh, really presented himself as a sort of dominant male in the social hierarchy, right? Sort of, sort of an alpha male. And that really goes along the preferences uh, of conservative people, right? Oh, yes. This is, uh, I mean, so it's, it wasn't only this election. So there's research looking at the past three, uh, at least a 300-year span of presidential elections. And I'm, I'm sure this is probably consistent around the world. I'm not aware of other research uh, examining this, but... Um, the larger of the two candidates won in almost all of these elections across 300 years. And in every instance, both candidates were larger than the average U.S. citizen. There is a very ancient pull for, to, to look towards larger, more physically formidable leaders because that's who we seek alliances with. And, and that's especially in the... Um, very fraught, very dangerous environments in which in which we evolved our political psychology. You know, even though today there's no way that a president is literally going to get our back in a fight. You know, but this resonates, and I I don't know if you if you watched the the debates or anything like that, but it was <laughs> so so people were bragging about their fighting prowess. It was really exaggerated and kind of bizarre. I think so. Ben Carson was was one of the uh, the, the run-ups, one, one of the potential candidates. And uh, he was arguing, he was bragging about going after people with br bricks and rocks. He was bragging about this. Um, another candidate, Jim Webb, on the Democratic side, was bragging about having killed an, an enemy soldier in, in Vietnam. I mean, why does this happen? Trump went out of his way to accentuate how big he was compared to his candidates. You know, he would call uh, George, little George Stephanopoulos uh, a small, Marco Rubio small. Anybody who was, was his perceived enemy, 
they're small, I'm big, you know. So um, this is very old. It's very ancient. You know, we have we have a draw to that. Mm -hmm. So let's talk more specifically about the evolutionary basis of that kind of behavior, because in, in the book, you basically present uh, conservative politics as a male centered approach to politics and liberalism as a more of a women centered approach to it. Right. So could you. Tell us, basically, perhaps, what are some of the main differences that we have to take into account between men and women to, to try to get a first understanding of where this comes from? Well, a good place to start, and first let me start off by saying, look, it's not a perfect correlation. There are right. many, many millions of conservative women and, and many, many millions of, of, of liberal men uh but but look a, a lot of this is tied to our endocrinology so higher testosterone men are less empathic uh they make poorer nurturers they share less and they're better at enacting mating strategies that are short-term and numerous right a, a shotgun blast to mating um which fits in with kind of the a predominant male strategy that we see around the world which i'm sure we can, we're going to unpackage um whereas lower testosterone men are, are are more empathic they make better nurturers they're more interested in in, in rearing uh, offspring and these are all characteristics of of women and liberal men um i think i think one thing that i that i talk about is I, to put this all into context we have to understand uh what it was like in the in the in the lives of our ancestors what, what it was like living living in in these environments first of all they're pretty dangerous i mean we take it for granted now that there are not large predators uh you know in our neighborhoods ready to consume us right um but not only that the outside tribe there the dangers from outside tribes were incredibly high we can deduce this from the archaeological record looking at all the the massacre sites um, and by examining contemporary foragers who have an incredibly high uh, murder rate. And it's usually men that get targeted. So a common strategy for men to gain reproductive fitness was to form coalitions, raid the neighboring tribe, kill all the men, kill all the male offspring, and take the women as their, their, their spoils of war. Well, well, males have an incentive to do that. You know, we see we see something similar among chimpanzees uh, because in engaging in that they can they can, uh, you know, reproduce at, at, you know, at a much higher rate than if they didn't engage in that behavior. So this was a process of sexual selection. Uh, women wouldn't have the same advantage, right? It wouldn't benefit women to tear into the rival tribe, kill all the women and mate with as many as men as possible. Um, so our. Our uh, political psychology bears the scars of that behavior. Let's take, for example, uh, the right-wing authoritarianism scale. This was a scale that a team of Berkeley scientists were trying to, to develop to help us understand what in the world gave us, gave us Hitler and, and how do so many people follow this, you know, the Nazi regime blindly and unquestioningly. Um, later developed by a Canadian psychologist, Robert Altemeyer. And, and basically, this instrument has three factors. One factor is the tendency to follow uh, authority, kind of blindly seed, seed 
uh, cede control up to authority figures, which for a lot of our past were usually big, dominant, sometimes even loud men, <laughs> right? Um, conformity, social conformity, like doing what the other person next to you is doing and aggressing against outsiders. Well, when we think about this, this conforms like lockstep with the social organization of the military. This has a militaristic utility about it. Because in the military, you cede authority up the chain of command. If you don't, you're going to get slaughtered on the battlefield, right? You can't have decisions be democratic on the battlefield. You do what the other person is doing. I mean, militaries are all about uh, uh, conformity and, and partially because, because it helps coordinate actions and aggressing against the outsider. So, so when you think about it, I mean, this, this serves this male function of conducting raids on the outside tribe or defending against them. So, so, but, but this is also uh, kind of the underlying psychology of the political right across, across the world. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot there to unpack. Let's start with this, perhaps, the, because going back to what you said at the beginning, we're talking here about uh, averages, both in terms of behavior that men and women tend to exhibit, and so in terms of sex behavioral differences, right? But also on the other end, we're talking about averages in terms of the behavior or the preferences that people both from the conservative and the liberal side of the political spectrum tend to exhibit, right? These, these are all averages. They're all averages. You know, you have to think probabilistically. I mean, you know, there are people who are liberally minded who, who uh, you know, may show some characteristics that I talked about on the right and vice versa but but and and these strategies are adaptable too that's important to know so so yeah you know it's it's not like we are political automatons that just uh you know behave uh in a way that just is directly tied to our dreams with no say in the matter but 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 and these these strategies can change depending on the circumstance so for example after the 9-11 attacks, people in New York City, liberals, took a more conservative turn. They scored higher on right-wing authoritarianism, you know, which, which shows that, look, this has an adaptive value. It helps us coalesce, look inward to the tribe, and say, how are we going to defend ourselves? So there's some flexibility there, yeah, sure. And that's, that's a really important thing to... Uh, to emphasize, especially for people who don't have a grounding in evolutionary science, because I think that's something that 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 people tend to fear. Like if I if I give up, if I if I admit to some influence on my behavior of my from my genes, am I conceding freedom to my genes? But I think I think that's not that's not necessarily the case. Mm -hmm. Yes, and I guess th there are two other things here. The first one would be that 
both of these strategies, the male-centered strategy and the female-centered one, I mean, they were both valuable during our evolutionary history because, I mean, for the males, I guess that it would be crucially important for for us to have males in our societies, to particularly to protect uh, the females from other males, f f both from within the group and from other groups, and also yes. to protect the infants. And yes. on the side of females, we we would really need a sort of a someone that is more empathic uh, and that cares more about uh, other people really to have someone that would be uh, more predisposed to rear the children or to help rear them because we also have had a lot of cooperative breeding during our evolutionary history, right? So, I, I mean, uh, people nowadays, because we live in these affluent societies, we tend to think of things related to mm, masculinity, let's say, like violence and aggressiveness as negative aspects of uh, human nature, let's put it that way. But, I mean, evolutionarily speaking, those were also important aspects in human societies, right? They were, they were. And, and I, you know, w w the main three pressures that I unpackage in this book is the pressures of germs, of outside tribes, you know, the violence from outside tribes, and, and of, of rearing, uh, you know, human offspring into maturity, which is an enormous undertaking. We, we spend so much time in dependency. So, so having... A nurturing, empathic, uh, you know, subset of our of our society on both men and women's side was essential to, to that enterprise as well. Um, but you know, I, I often ask the question of you know how much does do these behaviors still serve us now that we are affluent? So let's let's consider another um, another kind of foundational instrument used to look at the underlying psychology of, of political conservatism, social dominance orientation. Mm -hmm. So social dominance orientation is basically measures the extent to which you want your group to have more than the other group, right? So, so in competition for resources that kind of mentality helps right that is what's going to motivate and men score way higher on this than women across the world across religions across uh you know political systems uh across systems where men, women have lots of rights and women have you know few rights um so this really speaks to like what does this benefit men to have this mentality um it does because it, it, it benefits men uh, reproductively speaking, it benefits men to want more than their rivals because their genetic fitness is based on that, right? They could, they could, they could increase their, their genes, um, their offspring exponentially by getting, wanting more and getting more than their rivals. Let's, let's take, let's take one example of that. The Guinness Book for World, the Guinness Book of World Records for the most offering offspring goes to a Moroccan sultan, I think in the 1700s, mm -hmm. uh, named Ismael the Bloodthirsty. That was what he was named. That's what he was nicknamed. 500 concubines and and 888 children. <laughs> <laughs> 
imagine well, that. Well, I, I thought it was Genghis Khan, but <laughs> perhaps. Uh, Genghis Khan, I, yeah, I mean, so so there's there's a huge swath of Asia that is tied directly to apparently to, to Genghis Khan, but but the Guinness Book of World Records has has Ismail as 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 on the top of all of this. So, you know, how did he how did he did he did he achieve this windfall of reproduction by raiding the outside tribes, taking all their riches, taking all their resources, by having more than them, by fortifying his cities with all those resources and feeding his army so that he could have more. This isn't an egalitarian enterprise, right? So to answer your question, yes, men, male aggression, uh, male territoriality, that all served a purpose. It, it protected us from the, from, the, from the raids of the outside tribes. But it also is tied to this reproductive greed because, you know, was, was uh, Ismail really protecting his city by doing this? Maybe, but he was also accumulating wealth and women. In fact, when we, when we look at, at men in the research lab, this is astounding, I think. Men with higher endogenous testosterone share less in laboratory games. You know, men who are injected testosterone share less. They show less egalitarian attitudes. So all this ties to, to, to reproduction. So um, yes, it had a, a protective function, but, but you know, we may, we may question today, you know, do we want to put limits on that drive for inequality? In the United States, we have billionaires that don't that pay zero in, in federal income tax. So that is where this this uh, psychology has ended up. Mm -hmm. So at a certain point there, I think you've alluded to what people in evolutionary psychology and other evolutionary sciences refer to as evolutionary mismatch. That is the fact that today we live in societies and environments that are so different from the ones we evolved in that perhaps some of the behaviors or predispositions that we have no longer really serve us at least that well. So I'm, I'm just going to read a quote from your book here that I think represents this, and then you will tell me if it really does or not. Right. Uh, so, uh, so right at the beginning, you say, uh, what I will show you in this book is that the difficulties we face forming cohesive societies in the modern era reflect psychological adaptations with a simple ancient purpose keeping our ancestors alive in savagely dangerous environments. So uh, you're really referring to uh, evolutionary mismatch here or, or not? I, I, think, I think we have to question, you know, how much of these impulses uh, continue to serve us today. So let's, let's take, for example, uh, our propensity to, to feel fear. So... Mm -hmm. When you when you when you look at our sensitivity to certain kinds of stimuli, our fear sensitivity, it falls on the natural curve. You know, some of us are very sensitive to a wide variety of fears, and so most of us are kind of in the middle, and 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 some people are on the far end that don't really fear very much. Um, so, when we use political orientation to predict where one falls on this natural curve, it maps on almost perfectly with with our, you know, so in other words, um, those who fear a lot 
tend to be more politically conservative. Those who fear much less tend to be uh, politically liberal. And I think it's important to explain it with that directionality in mind because we have evolved the capacity to fear, you know, millions of years before we ever had such a thing as political orientations. So one type of fear is fear of germs. Mm -hmm. Conservatives across the world are, are more sensitive to, to uh, you know, they, they, they tend to have uh, greater fears of germs than, than political liberals. So uh, that connects with the emotion of disgust, like, uh, right, and with things like, for example, pathogen disgust and sexual disgust, disgust correct? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, so researchers have designed these really clever measures, you know, kind of having people rate how much would you, how much would you be disgusted by the thought of eating monkey meat <laughs> or seeing an unflushed stool in the toilet, you know, stuff like that. And people rate that, you know, how much, how you discuss sensitivity, right? So people on the conservative end tend to, tend to be more fearful of, of germs. And they also tend to be more fearful of new people outsiders right so xenophobia whereas liberals tend to be more xeno xenophilic so more interested in new people more inclined to engage in world travel more likely to speak more than one language like you <laughs> um you know everything down to like you know more inclined to eat at an ethnic food restaurant a restaurant outside of your culture something like that so to answer your question um In our evolutionary past, it made sense to fear germs and even outsiders because they were the biggest vectors of disease, right? I mean, back when we were vulnerable to things like the common cold or the flu, if, if a newcomer came in carrying a disease that we didn't have immunity for, that could wipe out our entire tribe. So it was evolutionarily sensible to, to have a prejudicial psychology right? Um, not only for, for the fear of being raided by the outside tribe and slaughtered, but because of disease. But back then, we didn't have anything resembling vaccines or antibiotics. We didn't, we weren't aware of this invisible universe around us of, of you know, microbiology that we, that we know about now. We do have those things now. Right. We, we, we do know about basic hand washing and we do have vaccines. So, I mean, does that prejudicial psychology really serve us today? That's a question that I that I want people to ask themselves, particularly as we're moving towards a globalized culture, a globalized community of nations, whether we want to or not. We're heading that way anyway. So how much does it serve us? Mm -hmm. And do you in any way connect This, uh, this literature about, for example, disgust sensitivity and xenophobia to other literature that explores the differences in psychological traits between liberals and conservatives. Like, for example, when it comes to the big five, if I remember correctly, I think that liberals tend to score higher in openness to experience and agreeableness, for example, and the conservatives uh, score higher in conscientiousness or something like that. Yeah, there, 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 does, there are some, um, some uh, scales in the big five that map onto uh, political orientation and openness to experiences is, is probably the most robust. Um, so there's an idea that, that 
openness to experience enabled us to to migrate to new lands right mm-hmm. because because you're more open and interested in other people and we needed to do that we needed to do that to to explore new environments to to capitalize on on new environments and and the resources within them to interact with new people to avoid inbreeding um to learn new technologies that the outside tribe may have to engage in trade so openness to experience would facilitate that um being close to experience you you know you're more likely to to stick at the camp and and less likely on average on average to to do that so that that is the idea that is postulated behind you know why you know why liberals tend to be more open to experience and xenophilic and travel more that kind of thing and the opposite largely for conservatives mm-hmm. but i mean we're talking about all of these psychological uh, phenomena mental phenomena and uh, i guess that it is important also for people to really know that most of these things at least operate at a subconscious level and we're not aware of it at, at least of the motivations behind mm-hmm. our behavior that mm-hmm. come from our evolutionary past let's yeah say. yes and and that's true i mean i i saw you had lita cosmides on for uh, uh one of your shows and and what what she and and John her husband John Tubi called is instinct blindness. So for the most part we're we're not aware of our of our impulses, right? We don't have conscious awareness of of our evolved psychology. Um it's under the radar of our consciousness. So, you know, we may have a desire for a a sexy partner, right? Or we may have love for our children but we don't often consciously think of okay this is going to help perpetuate my genes across across the ages we don't necessarily think of that when we're loving our children it's like i'm loving my genes in this child you know it's just we're, this is unconscious um but you know this idea of instinct blindness has crucially important social implications civil implications and one of the things i stress is that if you don't understand your evolved psychology especially your your evolved political psychology others who understand it are going to use it to manipulate you right and and, and we see that in you know in, in the political spectacle here in the United States so and I can give some examples of that but but the idea is that you know when you bring this up for examination and and you can you can make better choices you can you can say look and and earlier i mentioned people people worry that you know uh, acknowledging some influence over our behavior is giving up freedom it it's it couldn't be that couldn't be more wrong because the more you know of your evolved impulses the more not less likely you're able to make better choices more conscious choices more rational choices more intentional choices about you know which one of these serve us and which one of these don't so i think it's really important but if if you like i'll give you an example of how of how these impulses are are um used to manipulate us because because you know political analysts the ones uh you know 
consulting with our political candidates, whispering in their ears, so to speak, telling them what to say. They know this research, I guarantee you. So it sounds like you, you, you follow a little bit of, of you know, politics in the United States. So during the uh, 2018 uh, congressional elections, mm-hmm. there was this curiously timed migrant caravan coming up from Central and South America, marching ominously towards the border. There was a lot of coverage of this on conservative news uh, outlets. Mm-hmm. And, you know, after the elections, the, the coverage just stopped. But what was really being plugged is that these people could be carrying disease. Right. Maybe even smallpox. They're, they're, you know, Fox News aired a segment, you know, claiming that. Well, small, smallpox has been eradicated, but that, that doesn't matter. If you, if you are on the more fearful end of the natural curve, that is going to resonate with you. Right. And, and you're going to take that to the voting booth and you're going to take that to those most strongly, um, you know, talking about immigration and building a wall to separate us, to protect us. And perhaps all the other policies that 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 that, you know, political faction brings along with it. So so this gets manipulated. And so we, we need to know this psychology. Others do. Right. Yeah, and I mean, uh, I guess that another problem here is that most people, when they're exposed to this sort of uh, knowledge that comes from science, and particularly when we're talking about the behavioral and cognitive sciences, and we're referring to things that come from our evolutionary past and that we might refer to as innate or as innate proclivity, something like that. Uh, people sometimes, and particularly uh, the liberals, let's say, they tend to be a bit fearful uh, of the possibility of people using this information to make a sort of a naturalistic fallacy and say, oh, for example, if people are like this, if men behave like this and women like that, then... This is what we should consider to be good behavior on the part of both sexes. And perhaps if they take it to the extreme, maybe women should go back to the kitchen or something like that. Because they have no place in men's men's professional environments or something like that. So, I mean, but this is in fact, as I said, a, a fallacy, right? Sure. And and I think um, the way that fallacy is committed uh, on the left and right are pretty distinct. Uh, so like you said, you know, the left tends to make this fall- a sense to sound like, well, war is undesirable. So therefore, we can't possibly, possibly have an inclination for it. Even even scholars in the evolutionary sciences make this fallacy. Um Gender inequality is undesirable, so we can't. There can't possibly be sex differences. You know um, that 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 research must be a priori false. On the other hand, you might have conservatives, you know, thinking, well, because because there are sex differences, that justifies gender inequality. So, a lot of the ways these uh, fallacies are committed 
has to do with what we I mentioned earlier. You know, how do we navigate the, the primate dominance hierarchy, right? And and one of the things I argue is that liberalism is is in many ways a psychological strategy to keep from falling down the hierarchy or or, or rising up, and 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 that's important because you know where you are in the dominance hierarchy often is related to access to resources that are critical for our genetic fitness, food, mates, territory, things like that. So, so liberals tend to be much more about policies that, that level the playing field, that keep the dominant individuals from hoarding resources or, uh, you know, or women or whatever, um, for impinging on our evolutionary fitness. So equal pay for women, uh, affirmative action, you know, um, checks and balances on those in authority, whereas, whereas, uh, you know, uh, conservatives tend to be much more about the status quo, about maintaining, maintaining that dominance position. So, um, and that can shift, right? That can shift depending on where you are on the dominance hierarchy. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, and I guess that we have one more controversial topic here, at least, and I will uh, take the opportunity to. Uh, to present this question, then to move on to another topic that is related to it, that is the fact that these things that we're talking about, even the ones that we consider negative, particularly perhaps the ones coming from a male-centered approach and Maybe feminists would refer to these nowadays as toxic masculinity, like dominance, aggression, violence, and things like that. I mean, we've already talked before in the interview about the fact that they were also valuable strategies to have, at least uh, on the part of some people that were part of our uh, human societies during our evolutionary history. But the other part of it that is controversial, at least for modern people perhaps, is that men who exhibit these traits, I mean, they are also targets of sexual selection, right? These traits that men exhibit. And so uh, women, at least during most of our evolutionary history, really tended to prefer men that exhibited these sorts of behavior, right? Well, you know, put simply, and in a violent, competitive environment, if you're a female, you're going to want traits in your male offspring that are designed for success in that kind of environment. Because timid, shy... Uh, submissive males are not going to perpetuate your genes, and 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 sons have a, a much greater capacity to spread, uh, you know, a woman's genes than than daughters do. This is what's referred to as the sexy son hypothesis. So, um, in those kinds of environments, you you want you want to mate with the the most uh, domineering, aggressive, you know, within certain limits. You know, generally speaking, I have you know we have to clarify. That this isn't this isn't just uh, you know a black and white kind of approach to to reproduction. It can be very complex, but 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 that that has uh, that can have a selective advantage in your sons. Oh well, yeah, you're absolutely right. Mm-hmm. And I guess that this also leads leads us to another problem here. That is the fact that 
uh, I guess, across the world nowadays and historically speaking also, men have um, for uh, like close to 100% of societies and political uh, structure, uh, structures, let's say, they, they have been at the top for most of the time, and I mean, this leads us to what we tend to call patriarchy. So, I, I mean, because men uh, tend to be the sex that really is motivated to escalate dominance hierarchies and power hierarchies, because, the, uh, as we said just now, those traits would be the ones that uh, women would prefer and select for. Uh, I mean, would it be possible for us in any way to say that a patriarchy, and, and by the way, if you could give us also perhaps a better definition of patriarchy here, but uh, that it would be somewhat natural to have patriarchy in human societies? Is it natural? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I mean, we do we do seem to be drawn to to uh, you know male leaders who are big. But you know, the interesting thing is more so in the time in times of war, in times of peace, we tend to prefer different kinds of leaders. You know, at times where where social harmony within the clan is is more important, you know, women tend to tend to contribute to that. So, so yeah, so I, you know, that patriarchy can be a loaded term, but I, 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 I tend to focus on abuses of power because mm -hmm. of the implications that they have for, for human suffering. And, and within, within this male dominated, um, or male centric approach to, to governance, you know, we, we do see abuses of power if they're not checked. If they're not checked, and and you know, and in many ways, you know, uh, government is is designed to keep our most you know base impulses in check. That's that's what it's that's what it's designed for. So so yeah, I think there's there's some value to asking where this all comes from. Once again, how, how much does this really serve us? And 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 what is it really? What where does this all come from? Right, and I guess that perhaps these this aspect of patriarchy is interesting to explore also because most of the rules in society that men created and then that were crystallized in systems of law, uh, I mean, many of them at least uh, were created to serve the interests of men, for example, when it comes to mating and sexual control yes. over women and other things like that, right? Yes. Yeah, and I, I think that's probably a good example to, 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 to maybe better answer your question. So let's talk about the fear of cuckoldry. So right. the term comes from the cuckoo bird. It's this notorious little bird that, that engages in a practice called brood parasitism. So what it does is it lays its eggs in other, other birds' nests, usually a much smaller species. The chick hatches, ejects all of the other eggs in that nest, and then an unrelated bird from a different species imprints on this bird and spends all this energy and time 
feeding this little imposter who's usually much bigger than these poor little birds that are that are kind of duped into caring for somebody else's offspring. That's where the term cuckoldry comes from. And cuckoldry has been a threat to male reproductive fitness across our history because women always know if a child is theirs, right? Men don't know that. And so a, a big evolutionary failure um, is raising another man's offspring. Mm-hmm. So for you know, ever since we have had laws, I mean, you know, certain behaviors to avoid cuckoldry have been have been, you know, put into the penal code. Um, in Texas, for example, in, in up until like 1973, uh, men could be exonerated for for killing their wife if they if she if they if he caught them cheating, you know, murdering her. So, so yes, I mean, a lot of a lot of our government reflects male evolutionary concerns. Um, another example is looking at what when we measure political orientation across the world and rank it, you know, rank nations by how politically conservative they are. What we see is that the most politically conservative nations tend to be Islamic majority nations. And so, interestingly, we see the highest level of mate guarding in these countries. So mate guarding is where, you know, males will guard their mates to prevent cuckoldry. They'll follow them around. I mean, we see this in other species, follow them around, be very, uh, you know, um, jealous and, and protective, especially when, when their mates are in estrus. Mm-hmm. So in these nations, in Islamic nations, the science shows that you know that's you see the the biggest gaps in gender equality, and a lot of these gaps have to do with mate guarding. So in in many Islamic nations, you you know you can't travel outside the home without a, a male guardian. You can't leave the country without permission from your male guardian. You can't leave the house without covering yourself in drapery so that you're not tempting to other men. And some some cases, if you get raped, you, you know you can get killed for that. Well, this is all based on on you know uh, you know trying to defend against against cuckoldry. Now, interestingly, too, um, in non-human animals, we see cuckoldry at its highest when there's a skewed sex ratio. So mm-hmm. when there's when there's a high when you have like more, for example, more more males in a population than females, mate guarding increases to deal with the surplus of rivals. Right. So you make guard because there's all these rivals trying to get in on your action. The biggest sex ratios in the world are in Islamic nations. So so we see the same pattern among among other other animals. And, and, you know, I think I think um, people get a little wary when we when we bring up the topic of Islam, because, you know, they 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 confuse looking at Islam as a political system, which I think all religions are with Islamophobia, with being prejudiced against, uh, you know, a person or a race. But, you know, religions are political systems, if, if nothing else. So so that that gives you an idea. And it's not just Islamic nations. I mean, like I said, in Texas, I mean, it was legal to murder your, your wife if you caught her cheating on you. So... Yes, it's interesting that you refer to religion there, because I guess that when I was saying that people or men specifically tend to codify certain social norms that they create uh, in terms of 
codes of law and specifically also in terms of religious codes of conduct, let's say. So the uh, religion also uh, has a role to play there. Um, yeah. And you refer to Islam. Uh, I guess that perhaps another very important aspect regarding Islam is that uh, then in those countries where we have a majority of Islamic people, uh, I mean, the separation between church and state, uh, I mean, th does it really happen there as we have at least in Western countries? No, it's it's very poor. Yeah. And and that's that's a problem because, you know, when when you say and, and part of it is that when there's poor separation between church and state, you cannot question the hierarchy. Questioning is forbidden. Well, you know, you see these rules in the in the primate dominance hierarchy where, you know, you don't question the alpha chimpanzee's rule unless you want to get attacked by that by that alpha chimp. So men have a way of codifying this into laws and rules where you literally don't question the hierarchy. Divine right of kings, you know, for example, papal infallibility. You don't question the pope's the pope's power, the pope's authority because in fact of his alliance with the most powerful male in the universe. Right? Who frowns on questioning. He'll kill you for questioning according to scripture. So if you if you, you know, if you really believe that that makes that makes the idea of questioning the hierarchy terrifying but then again you know what i talk about in my first book is that how you know the gods of the abrahamic faiths and of of of, of many religions worldwide they tend to be based on on you know alpha primate male imperatives controlling sexuality uh controlling territory you know giving submission displays so, so, you know, it's interesting that, you know, mostly the gods in these uh, religions tend to have the same desires as the men who puppeteer them or represent them, <laughs> I guess I should say, for the vicars, right? Right. They, they want you to give up sex. They want you to take vows of chastity. Yeah, and I mean, it's interesting that we're talking about religion because religion has also been used throughout human history to justify certain very specific political actions that when we're looking back at male psychology really do seem to serve that kind of psychology, like, for example, war. Right. Oh, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So just, I mean, case in point, I think it ties into what we were talking about. Uh, in, the, in the Old Testament, Moses uh, ostensibly uh, at the order of God commanded his men to go into the rival tribe, kill all the women, kill all the male children, and take the women that, that please you as your sexual spoils. You know, so, so the alpha male in the sky that Moses was receiving his instructions from, you know, was telling his men to do this. Well, this is, this is male mate competition, basically. I mean, we, we see this, we see this imperative enacted across so many other species. Um, so, so yes, it, I mean, all of this serves a militaristic function. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, we've been referring to liberal and conservative politics, but uh, is it the case that perhaps 
in in different uh, social or ecological or environmental circumstances perhaps uh, these two types of political strategies uh, might might play a better role uh, i mean according to the circumstances perhaps in certain situations it's better for us to be conservative and in other situations to be at least a little bit more liberal uh, or not sure that 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 could be the case you know um um you know there's there's evidence to suggest in, in our evolutionary past that that times of of hardship times of resource scarcity really drove drove aggression so it became kind of an arms race so so you know if if in those times you know it benefits your tribe to conduct raids on the outside tribe and take their resources <clears throat> and because that benefits your fitness right it benefits you so it becomes an arms race between tribes the most militaristic survives that kind of that kind of experience and it eliminates uh, you know, male competitors who are who are using resources in a certain territory. You know, so we can deduce this from from the strata. You know, looking at periods of of uh, drought, and we can deduce this from looking at 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 fossil remains where there was massacres. You know, there's often starvation that we could see in the in the in the bones in the bones. You know, so <clears throat> the question is. Today, back then we were we were we were at at nature's mercy, though. You know, we 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 were living as hunter gatherers, and if there was a drought, we were in trouble. You know, if there was a, uh, if there was something that happened to to the the herds that we followed, we were in trouble. You know, but today we can, you know, we can feed the world in excess if we really wanted to. It's 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 we could eliminate starvation from the human experience. So does that militaristic, uh, does that militaristic um, imperative serve us to the same extent now mm. that we have technology, that we don't really have to compete for food anymore? Not really, we've mastered food production. So that's a big question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, even from an evolutionary perspective, uh, both strategies have survived, right? Uh, otherwise, we wouldn't have uh, liberal people or conservative people nowadays. So, I mean, probably they did survive because both strategies could be more or less useful in different circumstances. And since we as humans really occupied several different environmental niches perhaps both of them survived because of that because in certain situations it would be more favorable to us to be perhaps a little more open and to be more open for example to interbreeding and to communicate and establish relationships with other groups, other tribes, and in other situations perhaps to be a bit more protective and conservative and less open and things like that. Well, sure, and and one one bit of research that that really speaks to what you're talking about. I just I just find this endlessly fascinating, is that when you look at our distance from the equator, you mm -hmm. see a progressive liberalization in political views. Right. And if if conservatism was um, 
you know, evolved in part to, to help protect us from pathogens, that makes perfect sense because the further you get away from the equator where it's hotter, it's more home to pathogens, the germ load gets smaller, right? And, and women tend to be more sexually open the further you get away from the equator. Well, you know, women are usually on the receiving ends of fluids in sexual intercourse, and they're probably more likely to, to get, in, you know, infected by, by a sexual partner. Um, so, so sure. I mean, it, it makes, it makes sense how, how this evolved from the pressures of our ancestral past, but, but look, we're, we're carrying around all of these impulses that some of which are, are pretty destructive, you know, mm -hmm. does it really serve us to have this, uh, this fear of germs when we have, when we have, maybe if there's a big outbreak of some kind, but when we have access to, to vaccines and, and, and antibiotics, Especially because, because leaders, world leaders will manipulate us using these adaptations as, as, a, as a hook. So during uh, World War II, the Nazi regime often referred to Jews as vermin. Right. Vermin carried disease. You know, yeah, uh, and they even use the same gas that they used in uh, in industry to kill pests uh, in the gas chambers, right? Zyklon B, was it? I guess that's telling. That's telling, yeah. you know. And and so that that rhetoric goes on and on and on. In even even recently, you know, Donald Trump once said that you know immigrants are coming to come in and infest our 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 nation. I'm paraphrasing, but that's that's basically the idea. So um, so does it really serve us to to you know to have these adaptations when they have such capacity for? for um destruction when the threats are manufactured if the threats are real that's fine but often the threats are manufactured and you know for political ends uh and that's that's the thing you know what so you know the threat uh, you know donald trump for example promised to protect us from the mexican rapists that are going to come over our border and you know but that's a manufactured threat i mean and what what isn't asked often is who stands to benefit from that how right. many billions of dollars in government contracts would go into building a border wall separating the united states from mexico Men, some some people stand to gain incredible wealth off of that off of the border wall uh, using that fear to get policy support for it that's the thing so so we have to we have to make all of this stuff more conscious and you know i i think that I, I talk about this in the book. There is research showing that people on the conservative end tend to be more credulous, more manipulable. Mm -hmm. And this is objective research. It's not just me saying that, you know, um, especially when fear is used. You know, so like, like, you know, many academics, I'm, I'm left of center, right? I, I, I you know, admit that. <laughs> But that really makes me mad. That really makes me, you know, feel protective over my countrymen who are on the conservative end. We're getting manipulated. They're getting manipulated. Mm -hmm. You know, we have to know this research. We have to make it part of the conversation about who we are. We have to make it, you know, the conversation about who we are politically. You know, it should it should we should discuss religions through this through this lens. We should discuss everything through the lens of evolutionary science. 
Yes, and I mean, even in today's political environment of uh, more and more polarization over time, I guess that it is really crucial for us to talk about these things. Uh, also, because since we have this sort of coalitional psychology and because of our in-group, out-group dynamics, I guess that if people are infused with fear by the media and by politicians and things like that, that, I mean, if someone that is part of their political tribe uh, comes up with uh, a, a position that is even more extreme than, than the one they already had before, then, uh, I mean, at a certain point before they, they, fear, they feel fear uh, and things like that, over time, people go move more and more to the extreme because uh, sure. they they also start uh, they, they also start thinking that perhaps people who do not hold those extreme view, views are no longer part of their group, and they also have perhaps to put them aside and to think that they uh, are not really liberals or conservatives or but part of the opposite side of the political spectrum. And that's also perhaps why we nowadays, uh, and I'm also a liberal, but uh, liberals nowadays tend to very quickly qualify someone as a, raci a racist or sexist or fascist, yeah. just yeah. because people uh, uh, perhaps question some of the dogma that is going around. <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, you, I think you described th that dynamic very clearly. Sure. Um, everything you just said. I mean, yes, I, I think, I think uh, badges of tribal identity, they can, they can become more extreme and more extreme. And, and, pe and, you know, people from, from outside nations can use it to manipulate us, you know, and that's something that is, is a signature concern of the right. So for example, during the 2016 election, there were these Russian meme generators putting out all these memes through social social media that really know, you know, what tends to trigger somebody on the left and what tends to trigger somebody on the right. You know, the left has their own buttons too. You know, issues of fairness, you know, issues of equality, and so these were being funneled into to you know uh, uh, social media in America and really contributed to us literally fighting ourselves in the street as we did when we protest when when the, all the protests came up after the 2016 election so so yeah they they can divide societies and 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 uh cause uh you know nations to to break down and stop functioning mm -hmm. and so so we we should understand it mm -hmm. so you really do think that we can profit from this knowledge to perhaps try to counter this political polarization that we're witnessing uh, in even more perhaps in western society nowadays uh, i mean i'm asking you this because uh, in other conversations that i've had for the show for example the one that i've had with dr martin daly uh, right at the end of the interview i asked him if he thought that we could use uh, these evolutionary knowledge and if we uh -huh simply communicated it to people and people knew a little bit more about how they uh, how their minds function and things like that if that would help 
in that case to reduce violence and in this case to reduce political polarization. And he told me that uh, he didn't really think that that by itself would make much of a difference but because he was sort of an environmental determinist in the sense that he thought that the best strategy would be simply for us to change the conditions in our environments and, and those would be the things that would lead people toward better, better behavior. So was his argument that when environments are more predictable and safer, then people people become more civil with one another? Is that is that kind of his take? Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the case we were talking about violence and how economic inequality leads yeah. to more violence, particularly among young men, because they are basically competing among themselves for for sexual resources, in this case women, right, and things like that. And I asked him really if yeah. simply telling people about these evolutionary processes and what is really behind their actions, if that would help. And that right. was the answer that he gave me. So Yeah, yeah. That's a that's a very interesting question. Um well I I think that if we can ever get a handle on that, that has to be systematized in the public school system. You know, we have to teach people about about evolutionary science, we have to teach critical thinking, teach people about all their moral biases, but it should inform policy as well. You know, there are people who create these environmental conditions where there is inequality uh, by just manipulating the, the, the populace, right? In America, you have, again, billionaires that don't pay taxes. Um, and you see vast differences between those on the top and those on the bottom. You know, what impact does that have? Um, but it should it should inform policy. It should inform legislation. So, to give you one example, I mean, polygyny has been outlawed in a lot of places around the world. I think that's a pretty sensible strategy because what we know, what we know is that in societies that are more polygynous, that that where polygynous is 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 uh, is legal, I should say, there's a higher frequency of revolutions. Right. right. So who fights revolutions? Young men, young men trying to break in to, you know, to to a mating market dominated by older established males. We see this in other species as well. So so policy has to be informed by evolutionary science as well. So is that going to happen from the top down? Maybe not. I mean, you know, those in in in, in positions of authority have all, always had a vested interest in keeping the public uh, ignorant. So, so we need to educate the public and we need to hold, we need to hold, uh, you know, those lawmakers and policymakers accountable using this knowledge. This knowledge is, is, is so neglected, but it's so crucial to, to functioning societies. Mm-hmm. Okay. So perhaps just one last topic, because nowadays we also talk a lot about gender inequality. And I guess that since we're talking about politics, it would also be important to talk about the role of women in politics, because it has been dominated, as we've already talked about here, for many millennia by men, basically. And I guess that Uh, I mean, it seems to me that the data points toward uh, when countries uh, uh, 
move in the progressive scale and they grant more and more rights to women, the percentage of women in politics tend to tends to go up, right? But I mean, even so, it seems that uh, men still tend to acquire or to hold most of the positions of power in society. And I guess that the other complication here coming from the literature about uh, the gen what they call the gender paradox, where it seems yeah. that in countries where women have more rights and are able to go to university and work wherever they want, uh, it seems that the differences in terms of occupational interests interests between men and women tend to go up. <laughs> right. Cur curiously, that's why they call it yeah. the gender paradox. So, I mean, uh, what can we do about this? There are people that propose quotas or higher quotas for women. But, I mean, on the other hand, uh, if women are really not that interested in holding these positions and occupations, I mean, what could be the best approach here? Oh, boy, you have to be very, very careful when you start imposing quotas, I think. I think it, it I, I, and, and, and boy, talk about a topic that, that gets, gets people's hackles up. I mean, uh, I can't wait to see your comment section when we talk about this because that can be very threatening, especially to men who want, who are programmed to like, no, we must have control. And what are you saying? You're feminizing the world. It's like you're you're trying to emasculate us. But you know, the truth is, when 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 women have more power, societies just it becomes healthier and just better and more livable for everybody. Education increases, you know, things like that. There's more fairness. Um, healthcare access to healthcare increases. Look at the most, the the most societally healthy nations in the world. And there's ways to measure this. There are ways to measure societal health. Um, tend to afford women the most power, right? They tend to they tend to um, have have more opportunities for women, more freedoms for women. And when women get into positions of power. Um, they, they tend to, generally speaking, they tend to govern very differently than men. It tends to be more based on compassion. Right. Uh, defense spending goes down. Um, but only, I mean, usually when they're surrounded by same-sex peers, there is a trend that when women first start coming into politics, they tend to be more, more hawkish. Margaret Thatcher, Hillary Clinton, for example tend to be more hawkish in their foreign policy. And so sometimes when we talk about this, people say, we'll point to these women like, well, what about them? They were kind of warlike. Well, yeah. So there's research looking at this. So um, in the absence of, of being around, surrounded by their same-sex peers, they, they're entering a male dominance hierarchy. And everybody knows when you enter a male dominance hierarchy, you've got to prove yourself. You've know, you got to prove your toughness. But but when when women are surrounded in government by more of their same sex peers, they tend to they tend to uh, govern more, you know, possibly in accordance with their evolved evolved psychology. So and something you were talking about as well is that well yes, but but when women have greater freedoms, they tend to take jobs that are more, you know, probably in keeping with with their own 
uh, with their evolved psychology, like I don't know, teaching or things that 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 are maybe less less STEM fields, things like that. Um, so that's an interesting trend too, and I think the idea is that you know when when you provide for women, but with with you know, uh, let's say paid maternity leave or state funded health care, that that makes it safer to do those kinds of things. It's not it's not a dog eat dog kind of environment where women are forced to, into STEM fields just to try and try and feed themselves. So it's interesting. We have to look at all these dynamics. We have to examine them. We have to think about them and decide, hey, and really know that, hey, this, these sciences should inform policy. Uh, and, and there are some of our evolved tendencies that we should put thoughtful checks on. There's some that we should leash. <laughs> and, and there's some that, that, uh, that uh, you know, should, should have a greater expression. But there certainly wouldn't be any simple solution to these problems, right? Because, I mean, if the if the goal that certain people have, like, for example, people who are more on the progressive side of the political spectrum, if they say that they would only consider a society to be perfectly gender equal if we had a perfect 50-50 distribution of men and women in positions of power, then, I mean, should we really expect that to happen, taking into account this gender paradox uh, thing? Yeah, well, yeah, so we can't like force women into positions, right? But 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 maybe make them available. Sure. I mean, I, I don't think that that would be I don't think that's kind of morally acceptable either to, to force somebody into a position. But I think I think, you know, how about opportunity? You know, how about right. making that open? Um, uh, or how about looking at you know, the most destructive sides of, of male reproductive psychology and seeing how that plays out in government, seeing how that plays out in business and corporations, you know, and putting limits on that and understanding that. We need to do that as well. Mm -hmm. so. So, so perhaps we should focus more our discourse on, um, uh, on getting more... Um, uh, more equality of opportunity instead of perhaps thinking that much about equality of outcome. Yeah, so a la Jordan Peterson and what he's talking about. Yeah, sure, but I, I don't know. I think I think we whatever we do, we have to take an empirical approach to that. Look at nations that do have quotas, see how they work, see if they work, mm -hmm. see if if that has an impact on societal health, you know, see see what impact quotas have and see if they can be they can be used judiciously or, or not, you know, whatever we do, it should be informed by, by, you know, by research. Mm -hmm. That's what I think. I just think science is the best way to, 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 to gather unbiased informa information because it has, it has mechanisms built in to help us avoid bias. So mm -hmm. whatever we should do, it should be science driven and thoughtful and, and, and rational and not let the survivalistic, fear and aggression based parts of the brain you know take the wheel <laughs> those right. should take th those should those should be you know take a back seat and and let the rational thinking intel parts of the brain start to drive that's mm -hmm. what i think 
Okay, okay. So, Dr. Garcia, let's end on that note. But just before we go, would you like to tell people, apart from your books, what could be the best online resources if they want to get in touch with your work? Um, I think my website is probably the easiest way, hector-garcia.com. And you can also, there's a way to contact me through, through that as well. Yeah, that's probably the easiest, hector-garcia.com. Okay. Okay. So I will be leaving all of that and also links to your to your books in the description box of the video. And so, Dr. Garcia, thank you again a lot for taking the time to come on the show. It was really a pleasure to everyone. Thank you for this thoughtful conversation. Appreciate it. Uh Hi everybody, thank you so much for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've started this channel in February 2018 and have been putting out regular interviews with academics from a variety of fields. So just to keep the channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. If you don't like Patreon, you can also do it via PayPal and Subscribestar. Yeah, all of the links will be in the description box. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my Patreons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perel Galarsen, Lau Guerrero, Chantel Gelina, Jim Frank, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Brian Rivera, Lucas Stafiniak, Sergio Condriano, Jane Eninen, and my first producer, Isar Weber. Thank you for all.